Welcome to episode 31 of the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness. To recap last week, you'll remember that Caesar outraced Arivistus and took the Squawney town of Asantio. There, his soldiers came very close to refusing to march altogether after having contact with some Gallic traders that had described the Germans as being incredibly fierce, brave, and skilled with weapons, and even said that they could barely hold eye contact with the Germans. They were so scary. This had spread fear among Caesar's Roman troops, and pretty soon they had come very close to refusing to march with Caesar altogether. Caesar, rather than punishing them, had gathered his officers together, and long story short, he gave them a rousing speech. At times he used logic, at times he used shame, and at times he built up their confidence. But in the end, his soldiers came away pumped up for the battle ahead and ready to follow Caesar into Orcus itself. If you're not familiar with Orcus, it is the Roman version of hell, or more accurately, the, the Roman version of Hades, which was the Greek version of the underworld. And the next morning, Caesar led them out early in the morning before the sun rose to march so that they wouldn't have any more time to think on their fears and their doubts, and they began marching towards Arivistus and his horde of Germans. And that is where we pick back up with episode 31 today. After seven days of marching without a break, Roman scouts returned to the Roman army and reported that the Germans were only 22 Roman miles away. And of course, Arivistus learns of this approach as well, because he has scouts out patrolling the area too. He's there with his entire army. And Arivistus sends envoys to Caesar when he realizes that the Romans are coming with their entire army. And he requests that the meeting that Caesar had wanted to happen previously, the one that Arivistus had said no to because he said, hey, if you want anything from me, Arivistus, you come to me. If I want anything from you, Caesar, I'll come to you. <laughs> that had been his logic at the time. Well, that meet meeting now, Arivistus is saying, can go ahead and happen now, especially since Caesar is closer to him and has come to him, which is kind of laughable because he was you know, kind of being a tough guy before, and then when he sees the Roman army on his horizons faster than he thought was possible, suddenly, oh yeah, sure, let's have that meeting, let's talk now, I don't want to fight. But anyway around it, Caesar accepts the request for this meeting. He figures in his head that Ariovistus has come to his senses after seeing that the Romans meant business, after seeing that they had brought an entire army into his province in record time. And Caesar says in the commentaries that he had hoped that the services done by himself as consul and by the Senate of Rome and the reasonable terms he's going to present to Ariovistus would combine to convince Arivistus to stop being stubborn and to listen to reason and really to listen to what Caesar wants. And Adrian Goldsworthy in his book, Caesar, Life of a Colossus, makes the point that Caesar may have legitimately wanted peace here. Because you'll hear a lot of people always say that, oh, Caesar wanted a war all along. Even ancient sources say this. They say that you know, he was just kind of playing at making peace and really was looking for an excuse to create a war. But Goldsworthy in his book makes the case that Caesar may have actually wanted peace legitimately because many Roman commanders, including Sola, the dictator, has celebrated throughout Rome's history moments when they had gathered their legions around them and basically held court and had the barbarian king come to them and then dictated terms to the barbarian king and told him what to do. And this kind of high-handed diplomacy 
or high-handed diplomatic victory had almost as much glory to the Romans as victory in war. Of course, it had considerably less in the way of spoils of war, but it had a lot of glory attached to it. So if Caesar could dictate to Ariovistus like this and make him cow before him and before the might of Rome, this would be quite a victory for Caesar. So it, it's not just cut and dry of, oh, of course he wanted a war. I mean, there was ways for him to achieve glory even in peace. As Sola had done. But at this point, as I said, Caesar accepts the envoy. He agrees to have peace talks with Ariovistus, and they set the meeting for five days out. And during these five days, envoys continue to be sent back and forth between the German camp and the Roman camp. And in one of these messages, Ariovistus makes the meeting that they're about to have conditional upon Caesar bringing no infantry. Now, this condition may sound rather harmless and just kind of a procedural thing at first glance, but there's a lot more going on here than, uh, than you might think at first glance. You see, no infantry means that Caesar has to bring cavalry. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, the Roman cavalry was not Roman at all. They were supplied by their allies. And depending on the region, that ally would change. Well, in this theater of war, Caesar is fighting in Gaul. His allies are the Gauls, and that's, they are the ones he has to depend on as cavalry. So all of his cavalry forces, although they are fighting under the Roman banners, are really Gallic cavalry. And Caesar does not trust the Gauls enough to put his life in their hands like this. And he doesn't trust their abilities or their intentions. And, I mean, we can see from, from previous episodes, from what we've talked about with Dumnorix and how he had intentionally routed the cavalry and tried to start a general route among the Roman army to encourage the Helveti and how he had withheld supplies from the Romans that the Gauls, I mean, there are many different peoples, many different tribes, but they have not always been reliable. And this idea that Caesar's going to show up to this peace meeting with a bunch of hostile Germans and then a bunch of Gauls who he doesn't know which side they're on, and for all he knows, they may have family members that are hostages of Ariovistus. this is not good for him, right? This is not a good look. And Caesar, throughout his life, in an analysis of him that you'll see in many different sources, he sometimes gets a reputation for being overly trusting of people. And throughout his life, he definitely leans more towards trusting people than distrusting them, especially fellow Romans. But here's an example of a time where we can see where Caesar's not being overly trusting. He is being a discerning judge of character, and he has judged his Gallic troops to not be trustworthy. And the thing is, Ariovistus likely knew this. He likely knew that Caesar's cavalry was supplied by the Gauls, and he wanted to put Caesar at a disadvantage. At the very least, he wanted to make him feel uncomfortable in being surrounded by men who he didn't know as well, who perhaps couldn't speak the same language as him, and who he didn't feel he could trust. You know, kind of throw him off his guard in the meeting, or throw him off of his best performance in this meeting. At the worst, he's potentially setting a trap for Caesar, in which he has some kind of back channels to these Gauls, and they kidnap Caesar or try to kill him right then and there. Now, from Caesar's viewpoint, he doesn't want to break off the meeting for a flimsy-sounding pretext, right? Meaning, he doesn't want to say, hey, I refuse to meet with the Germans because they said I can't bring my infantry. It makes him sound petty, and yes, he can explain the reasons behind it, but on the surface level, it looks petty and looks stupid that he's starting a war because he refuses to bring his cavalry to a meeting, right? 
But this is Caesar we're talking about, and this is a guy that is very creative and, and always finds workarounds. And so for this, he has a clever way to get around this requirement that Arivistus has imposed upon him. He has infantry from his 10th legion. This is the legion that he trusts the most, the one that in the previous episode, he said he would march on with just the 10th legion because he trusted them that much. Well, he has infantry soldiers from that legion mount onto horses. He takes the horses from his Gallic cavalry and he puts legionaries from the 10th legion onto these horses. This way, he could have trusted troops around him to protect him and either A, Ariovistus would be none the wiser because these guys would be dressed as Gauls, or B, these men would be dressed as Roman infantrymen on horses, and Ariovistus would know right then that Caesar had found a way around th this whole issue. But either way, Caesar would be protected, and that's what really mattered to him. And as you would imagine, the 10th Legion was thrilled by this. One soldier said that Caesar had promised to make them his bodyguard, which we heard in the last episode, he had promised to make them his bodyguard, and now he was doing one more than he had promised by making them equites. And this is a Roman joke that any Roman audience member would understand and laugh at and find funny, but if you sitting in the year 2021 or whatever year you're listening to this don't understand, allow me to explain. You see, equites, or another kind of translation might be knights, were a social class in Rome. And... By this point in the Roman Republic, they mostly just engaged in business affairs and in commerce. But in the early days of the Republic, it was more of a military class, the Equites. And in the early days of the, of the Republic, they acted as the cavalry force for the Republic's armies. And as such, they were given public horses by the Roman Senate and by the Roman government to ride with and fight in battle and, and kept at the expense of the state. So here the soldier's making a joke that Caesar, by giving them these horses, is making them equites. Of course, he's not actually promoting them in social status. He doesn't have the power to do that. But it's just a play on words that involves the history of Rome that the Roman audience would love and understand and think was funny. And this kind of banter between soldiers and their commander, meaning Caesar, really fosters a feeling of camaraderie among them. And I know I've kind of been going on and on about how close Caesar and his soldiers were and how that bond was formed, but there's a reason I'm doing it. So often in the story of Julius Caesar, so often in the story of the fall of the Roman Republic, you will hear, oh, and Caesar had these legions that were fanatically devoted to him, and therefore he was able to do this or do that. And nobody ever bothers to explain in detail, well, how did that happen? How do those legions become so devoted to him? How does one do this, right? How does one take a group of men who doesn't know you from Adam and convince them to throw in their entire life with you, right? To risk their life for you. Many of them will die for you. How does one do this, right? This is a remarkable accomplishment. And you can argue on the morality of it, of getting other people to die for your honor, or for your name, but it's still an amazing thing to be able to do regardless, right? So part of my goal with the podcast, or, or one of the many ones, is to figure out, well, how exactly did Caesar do this? And the answer is, it's the details matter, right? So yes, the big things that he does matter. The dismounting from his horse before the battle against Helvetii, that kind of stuff matters. That builds trust. But these little things matter just as much. 
the fact that these soldiers feel comfortable enough with Caesar to make these kinds of jokes, and the fact that Caesar appreciates these jokes so much that he wrote them into the history books. He included them in the commentaries, right? This makes them feel good. It makes them feel like their general is not just some stuffy commander. He is one of the soldiers. He is one of them. And they like him for this. They love him for this, right? These little things that Caesar does build their loyalty to him to a degree that is, is just unheard of in history. And when I see those little things, I will point them out to you again and again. And some listeners may get tired of hearing it, but I think that only by me pointing these things out and talking about them again and again can we see when the time comes to finally cross the Rubicon, why these troops willingly said yes. But getting back to our narrative, finally the day of the meeting comes, and the location has been selected. There is a large field between the two armies, and roughly in the center of this field is a large hill, or Caesar calls it a mound, midway between the two camps, and this is where they've decided to meet. And it was agreed on beforehand that both sides would ride up to this hill with their cavalry escort, and about 200 paces before the hill, they would stop. And if you don't know what 200 paces are, or have a mental picture of it, because I sure as heck don't, <laughs> it's about 152 meters, or in feet, it's about 500 feet. So they paused about 500 feet from this hill, and then both sides left their forces of cavalry behind and took only 10 soldiers on horseback with them to meet on top of the hill. So in total, Caesar does this and Ariovistus does this. So in total, they have 10 soldiers each with them. So there's 22 men total on horseback meeting on top of this hill. And the meeting's been worked out so that it will be conducted entirely in horseback. Basically, they're not going to get down and shake each other's hands. They're not going to sit and have drinks or eat. They're going to sit there on horseback and talk, right? And this is the first time in our story that these two big egos, Julius Caesar and Ariovistus, are meeting in person. And, of course, Caesar starts speaking first. At least according to him, he does. Now, remember, everything I'm telling you is according to Caesar. And many times he may be the hero of his own story. And I know in general, people that tend to tell stories where they are the hero all the time tend not to be believed. But I think that we've had enough instances of other sources telling stories about Caesar, that we've understood what kind of person he is, that he's not one to be intimidated, that he is one to use his voice whenever he feels fit. So I don't think we should doubt that he had the courage to go up there and, and speak first in this meeting, right? But the reason I bring up who spoke first and, and, and what they said is, remember, the Gauls had been so intimidated by the Germans that they could barely hold eye contact with them. And here Caesar is riding right up to the king of these Germans, Ariovistus, and giving him a speech whether he likes it or not, right? Not being timid and waiting to see, well, does Ariovistus want to speak first? I don't want to insult him, blah, blah, blah. No, Caesar's riding right up and giving a speech and letting Ariovistus know, hey, I'm in charge, I'm running this meeting, this is the direction we're taking it. And it does kind of remind you of his high-handed treatment of the pirates when he was younger. As always in his life, Caesar refuses to be intimidated, whether it's pirates who kidnap him or Sulla telling him to divorce his wife. Refusing to be intimidated is a deep-seated characteristic in who Caesar is as a person. And Caesar basically says that he as consul 
and the Roman Senate had given Ariovistus great honors. They had made him king and friend of Rome. And let me make sure that nobody's getting that confused because I've read, I've heard that myself say that in a few of these episodes now. And I don't mean that he's king of Rome, but the Romans would just declare him as king, a king, right? There's no the king to the Romans. There's just a bunch of kings out there and the Romans kind of looked down upon kings because they had no need of them, right? So he is king of whatever, the, the Germans in this case, and friend of the Roman people. But further, Caesar says that these are two high distinctions that the Romans don't give out lightly, and Ariovistus really hadn't deserved them at all, and yet he had received them nonetheless. And essentially what Caesar is saying here is that, one, check yourself, and two, remember who you owe. We built you up from nothing, we can take you down again. And Caesar also states that the Idawi are long-standing friends of the Romans, and he lists a whole series of decrees by the Senate over the years to prove this, basically showing that, hey, going back X amount of years, we've been listing the Idawi as friends. This is not a made-up friendship. We really have a long-standing bond with these people. And you have to imagine that Ariovistus, this Germanic king from beyond the Rhine, is now sitting there and being lectured on Roman decrees by the Roman Senate by Julius Caesar. He must have been bored out of his mind, right? Like, what am I doing here? What is this guy talking about? I have no idea what any of this means. And Caesar goes on to say that it was the Roman custom to make sure that their allies not only hold on to what they came into the partnership with, but also increase their favor, prestige, and distinction by having a friendship with Rome. Therefore, how could Caesar allow the Idoe to be robbed of what they had brought to the friendship, meaning their territory, their land, their people? And this, this is key because this really was a big part of Roman foreign policy, was you need to champion your allies and make sure that they benefit from being friends with you Otherwise, no one's going to bother to seek friendship with Rome, right? If they see, hey, look at the Idoe, they've been connected to Rome for all these years, and they're in this dilapidated, awful state, and they're semi-tributaries to this German king, Ariovistus, then you think to yourself, if you're a foreign king or a foreign senator of some Gallic tribe, why would I ever want to be a friend of Rome if, if it doesn't get you anywhere, right? If people can still push you around, take advantage of you, and there's no benefits. In other words, the Idoe would lose more after becoming friends of Rome than they ever gained beforehand, right? That's not the precedent the Romans want to set. And Caesar then restates the original terms he had given to Ariovistus. One, stop attacking the Idoe and their allies. Two, return the hostages. And three, if it was impossible to send any Germans home, at least stop new Germans from coming over the Rhine. And this last point, to me at least, seems somewhat reasonable. He's not saying that no, he's not saying to send all the Germans home right now. He's saying, I understand if you can't send the current people home, but don't accept any new Germans over the Rhine. Of course, this is only reasonable in the context that Caesar has any business ordering Arivistus around. And from the German perspective, Caesar has no business doing this. So it's all a matter of your viewpoint, as always. Now, in the commentaries, Caesar says that Ariovistus then only makes a, his literal words, his curt reply to these demands and justifications. Essentially, he brushes aside what Caesar says. 
He has no intention of letting Caesar steer the direction of the meeting and the conversation, and instead he launches into a defense of himself. He says that, look, I was invited over the Rhine by the Gauls. I didn't come over as an invader. I didn't come over uninvited. The Gauls invited me over. And he says that he had left his home and family with the purpose of making considerable gains. In other words, he had taken considerable risks, and the only reason he had done so was because he had been promised considerable gains. Now that he has these considerable gains, people are trying to take them away from him. The Gauls are trying, Caesar is trying, and he thinks this is ridiculous, right? He further says that the hostages that he had received were handed over to him willingly. Now, this stretches the definition of willingly as far as I can imagine, but I think from the ancient standpoint, what Arivistus is saying, the ancient viewpoint is that, hey, he had defeated these Gauls in battle. Now, they they had two choices at that point, keep fighting and, and potentially all die or hand over hostages. That had been their choice, and the fact that they had chosen to hand over hostages to him meant that they were willingly handed over, right? Willingly handed over because they had a choice. The, the other option was death, right? And they didn't choose that option. And he goes on to say that the tribute that he was exacting from the Gauls was his by right of war, and that this was typical for the conqueror to impose upon the conquered. And the implication is that Rome does this as well, and they do. They do this all across the Mediterranean to many, many more people than Arivistus does. And he says that he had not waged war upon Gaul, that in fact Gaul had attacked Arivistus, and all the Gauls had gathered and attacked him and were defeated in a single battle. And yes, Arivistus says that all of Gaul had gathered, but clearly it's not all of Gaul, and we'll see that in later episodes. The Gauls still have a lot of fight left in them. But Arivistus continues, and he says that if the Gauls wanted to try their might against Arivistus again, they were welcome. But if they wanted peace, they should pay the tribute. And Arivistus goes on to say some good points about being considered a friend of Rome, because he is considered a friend of Rome. He says that the friendship of the Roman people was supposed to be an honor and distinction, not a drawback. And if tribute had to be given back and hostages returned, then he wanted no part of being a friend of Rome. And finally, getting near the end of the speech now, Arivistus does deign to address the specific things that Caesar had said, his demands, his three demands, right? First, he starts by addressing the one about not bringing Germans over the Rhine. He says that he was bringing them over the Rhine not to attack anyone, but for his own defense. He also claims that he had been in Gaul first, before the Romans. And he claims the Romans had never left the boundaries of their provinces until now. Therefore, what did Caesar want with him? Why was Caesar coming into his territory with an army? This land that Caesar was in was Arivistus' province, he said, just as Cisalpine and Transalpine Gaul belonged to the Romans. Arivistus then addressed Caesar's claims that the Idaewi were long-standing brothers of the Romans. To this, Arivistus points out that in the Idaewi's past two wars, the Romans had not bothered to help them out at all. So basically, why were they bothering to help now, right? And he says he suspects that Caesar's friendship was a pretense. After all, Caesar had an army in Gaul, and Arivistus suspected that he was there with this army 
to try to crush him and his German soldiers. And finally, Arivasus saves his most interesting comment for the very end of his speech. And it's interesting enough that I'm going to read it direct from the commentaries for you. Quote, Unless Caesar left the area and took his army with him, he would treat him no longer as a friend, but as an enemy. In fact, said Arivistus, if he killed Caesar, he would earn the gratitude of many aristocrats and leaders at Rome. He knew this for a fact from those very men, through their messengers, and by Caesar's death he could win the favor and friendship of them all. If, on the other hand, Caesar departed and handed over full control of Gaul to him, he would give him a great reward. And whatever wars he wanted waged, these would be accomplished without any effort on, or risk on Caesar's part. End quote. Now this is very fascinating what Arvistus slips in right there. He's literally saying that there's a powerful faction in Rome that is sending him messengers, telling him that they will be extremely grateful if he kills Caesar for them. Now, Caesar in the narrative doesn't point fingers, right? He doesn't exactly say who this is. But if you've listened to the podcast up to this point, or if you were a member of the Roman upper classes that were familiar with Roman politics, you'll have little trouble guessing who he's talking about. The Optimates, right? And many people reading the commentaries would know who Caesar's referring to there as well, or, or really who Arivistus is referring to. And if this is true, this allegation... It is a wild new strategy being employed by the Optimates and a very unpatriotic one. Because <laughs> they're, I mean, they're sending messengers to a Germanic barbarian saying that he'll have their gratitude if they kill C if he kills Caesar. It's pretty wild. But uh, let's think. I mean, it, it is plausible, right? It would only be one in a long list of attempts by the Optimates to take down Caesar's career, which often means his life, or in this case, even kill him. But let's not forget, the source for all this is Caesar's word. Now, personally, this is just my personal non-historian opinion, I don't think Caesar completely made this up, because, I mean, you're having this meeting with this barbarian king, why would you completely throw in a huge plot twist and, and tell a giant whopper about the Optimates writing, you know, to, to Arivistus and, and requesting him to kill you if it wasn't true. It just seems kind of crazy, especially when there were 10 Roman witnesses there who could testify to whether this was true or not. From Caesar's perspective, you must he must have thought before he put this into his narrative that this almost seems stranger than fiction, Right. But history can often be stranger than fiction, so what was he going to do? Just, oh, no one's going to believe this, so I should not include it in the commentaries? I don't know. You know, I understand both sides of the debate, but I, I think we can, I, or I at least, take Caesar at his word here. And Caesar's response entirely ignores the comment about people in Rome wanting him dead. Instead, he focuses on saying that, one, Rome had actually been in Gaul long before Ariovistus. That's a, a bunch of nonsense. Rome had also defeated Gallic enemies and not made them pay tribute or turn them into provinces in the past. And this is kind of a, a wacky argument coming from Caesar, considering what he's about to spend his next eight, nine years in Gaul doing, which is subjugating Gaul, right? <laughs> so why he's making this argument, I don't know. But at this point, Caesar is alerted to some shenanigans going on between the two cavalry forces. 
You see a number of German cavalry who had been left 200 paces back from the hill were now riding close to the hill and were now riding close to Caesar's cavalry and throwing stones and missiles at the Roman cavalry. And what do they mean in, in or what does Caesar mean in the commentaries when he says missiles? <laughs> He's not talking about rocket launchers, of course. You know, ancient missiles were spears or stones or things like that. I mean, these are things that can kill. These are not jokes, right? So at this point, Caesar just ends his speech right there and then, ends the meeting right there and then, rides back to his cavalry, orders them not to return any fire upon the Germans. He did not want to give the Germans any justification for saying that the Romans had started the war or the fact, or for saying that they had attacked the Germans at a parley or had captured Arivistus at a peaceful parley and been treacherous. He's not having any of that. So he says, just go back to the camp. Don't throw anything back at them. And when Caesar and his mounted 10th legion returned to the Roman camp, the news soon spreads that one, Arivistus had ordered the Romans out of Gaul and two, that the German cavalry had attacked the mounted 10th legion. And upon hearing this, the Roman soldiers were fired up and couldn't wait to fight these Germans. But their commander, Caesar, is in no rush. A few days go by, and really nothing happens. But two days after the parley, Arivistus sends a messenger. He requests to finish the parley. Or at least, if Caesar thought that that was inappropriate, to send a messenger back if he was reluctant. Caesar thought about this request, but felt that there was really no point in having another parley, given, one, how the Germans had behaved in the first, <laughs> in the first meeting, right? And two, given that there was really no way for him to prevent, in, in future meetings, Germans throwing spears and stones at his soldiers, right? But in the commentaries, he genuinely seems reluctant to break off talks at this point. But he did feel that sending a Roman envoy would be dangerous, too, because this might amount just to handing over a hostage for Arivistus to barter with. So his solution was to send a young Roman citizen of Gallic descent, a man named Gaius Valerius Procillus. And his name appears in, in two different ways. Some say Procillus, some say, believe, Trocillus with a T. But either way, at this point, his name is Gaius Valerius Procillus. His name may change later in the commentaries, but that's neither here nor there. But Caesar describes this man as a good friend of his. He describes him as brave, cultured, loyal, fluent in the Gallic language, which, which is important because this is the language that Ariovistus speaks. And for some reason, Caesar felt that the Germans would not have any reason to harm this man. Presumably, I would guess, because he's of Gallic descent and that Arivistus would see him more as a Gaul than as a Roman. But in case this was not the case, Caesar sends another man with him, known as Marcus Medius. And Medius is supposedly friends with Arivistus, I've heard two different reports. In the commentary, Caesar calls him a friend of, of Arivistus. I've read other books that aren't primary sources that say that Medius was a Gallic trader who had received the hospitality of Arivistus once, which meant that Arivistus had hosted him, which is a far cry from being a friend, right? <laughs> but the hope is that this man being there, who Arivistus knows, would help to warm him up to the guy, right? But here's where it gets weird. Caesar says that their orders were to, quote, 
discover what Ariovistus was saying and report back. That's a quote from the commentaries. Now, the reason this is quite odd is because Caesar, throughout the commentaries, will say he sent messengers to this person, he sent envoys to that person, envoys here, envoys there. He doesn't usually say their mission, right? But in this case, he lists them as having this mission. Now, does he do this because he doesn't want to say that he sent them as envoys because they were really sent as spies? You know, this is the kind of the reading I get, is these guys were sent with a mission to discover what Ariovistus was saying and report back. It, it, it's cryptic, right? It doesn't read like most of the times where Caesar sends envoys. Well, you know, however much confusion we may have about whether these guys are spies or envoys, Ariovistus saw them and felt no confusion at all. He called them out in front of his entire gathered army, and he asked them why had they come, was it to spy? And before they could even answer him, he had them seized and put in chains. Was it a diplomatic mission or a spy mission? We don't know, but either way, it did not go well. And that is where we will end episode 31 of the March of History. As I said, I'm trying to keep the episodes a little bit shorter. And next week, we will pick back up where you will see who makes the next move, and what happens in this chess game between Ariovistus and Julius Caesar. But before we end this episode, let me just say, it has come to my attention through listening to some of the old episodes that certain podcast platforms include ads before or after or during the March of History episodes. These ads you may or may not have heard are not put there by me. I don't make any money off them. I don't have a choice whether they appear in my podcast or not. So I'm not really complaining about it. It's not a big deal in my eyes. I just want my audience to know that I have not loaded my podcast with ads yet. I do eventually, and hopefully soon, intend to get advertisers to make this podcast into a business and to try to podcast full-time for you guys, but that has not happened yet. When it does happen, the plan as of right now is for you to hear those ads in my own voice rather than have some random commercial pop-up for who knows what, right? It'll be me reading it to you. And finally, the March of History's Instagram is at the March of History. That has a ton of really cool history content and different posts that I do of, of my travels around Spain with a flavor for history, right? Different cathedrals, castles, Roman amphitheaters. Took a trip in December to the Roman city of Gades, which is now called Cadiz, where Caesar was governor of. So definitely check that out. The Twitter is at March underscore history. Our Facebook page is the March of History, which has all the same content as the Instagram, except you can also post yourself on that. So a good way for different fans to interact. Or if you want to send feedback, go ahead and shoot an email to the March of History at gmail.com. Finally, please feel free to leave us a review in the podcast store if you listen on an Apple device or any kind of app that allows you to leave a review. We really appreciate that. And share the podcast with other fans of history. And don't forget to subscribe so you get notifications to new episodes. That is all, and we will see you next time on The March of History. 